Stephanie Butnick. Hello. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined by two other Jews. You know them. They're the Jews I'm always here with. Stephanie Butnick, deputy editor of Tablet Magazine. Hello. And the editor at large, though smaller every day given his Peloton obsession, Leah Leibowitz. The Peloton Rav repents for his sins during the month of Elul with 45-minute long rides every day. I feel like at a certain point, the editor-at-large joke, the at-large of the joke, is going to need to be retired just in general. I don't I don't think so. Are you getting much smaller? When we see you again in person, are, are you, your pants going to be falling off you? What are pants? <laughs> <laughs> Who wears those? <laughs> it's 2020, Mark. Pants are so déclassé. We have two Jews and a Gentile for this episode coming to you right before Rosh Hashanah, right before the year 5781 which we hope will be a very good year. Stephanie and I spoke with Rabbi Sandra Lawson, who is the Jewish chaplain at Elon University in North Carolina. Stephanie had a quick convo with Elisa Klein and Zoe Plotsky of One Table about a new program they're launching to bring people together for Rosh Hashanah. And, and, drum roll and trumpet fanfare, please. We sat down on Zoom with returning Gentile of the Week, Father James Martin, our favorite Jesuit priest. And I say favorite, I know a lot of Jesuit priests. Like, I have a second, third, and fourth favorite. Those are the ones you don't ask on the show. Those are the ones who ended up on the cutting room floor. Jim Martin, author of Between Heaven and Mirth, a book about religion and humor, and author of a forthcoming book on prayer. And we chilled with him. Um, The new year is upon us. It is already the new year in some parts of the world. So happy new year to you. We're glad you chose to spend your time with us instead of in shul, for those of you who are skipping synagogue to listen to Unorthodox. Stephanie and Liel, um, a new year unlike any other in our lifetimes. We've always at least been able to go out, break some bread with friends, have a hug, take a walk, maybe go to synagogue, whatever, whatevs. How are you spending this Rosh Hashanah, Stephanie? So I will say that um, for me, I've always identified much more with the Jewish New Year than like the actual Gregorian Gentile January 1st, dry January, like all of that. I mean, I really, really have always found September to be for me, a very strong time of renewal. I was born in September. It's always sort of back to school season. My wedding anniversary is in September. Like there's, for me, the beginning of of fall is actually like this very profound moment in so many ways for me. So I love that that we have this time to really take stock baked into this Jewish calendar. And it's, it's at such a perfect time. I mean, if you think about December, January, it's winter. I mean, at least here where we live in the East Coast of America, you know, it's it's winter, it's cold. It's like now we're in this like beautiful time where the leaves are changing. I mean, I haven't been outside in a while, so I don't know if the leaves are actually changing or if they are continuing to change in 2020. But um, this idea of, of rebirth and growth, that always is really powerful for me. And even more so this year when it seems like we need that reset more than ever. And luckily, you know, the Jewish calendar has just built this in for us to take a moment. You know, we've obviously had a lot of moments to ourselves. By the way, I, this is not an answer to your question. What am I doing this this year? <laughs> That's answering, okay. This is more of a comment than an answer to your question. Um, but I think we all need this reset, this idea of like taking stock. We've, I think in a lot of ways we have spent the last six months taking stock of our lives, of our loved ones. I mean, there's been so much like, you know, who shall live, who shall die. That has never been more powerful than this year when we actually are in the midst of losing people we love and, and seeing this idea of sickness and health. I mean, that is 
so, so, so completely profound. And I think it's going to be really emotional this year, listening to those prayers, however you're listening to them, whether you're live streaming, whether, I don't know, I don't know what's going on in other parts of the country and the world, but hearing those words, it's going to take on new meaning this year. And I actually don't know what I'm doing for the holidays. I'm just like, I think I'll, I'll probably stream. I have my sort of like rotating cast of, of services I like to stream. Um, I'd like to see family outside if, if that's if that's possible. I don't know. I mean, I just I just am looking forward to this chance to just sit back and and be with our thoughts and not feel like there's somewhere we have to be or have to go or a deadline we have to meet. I mean, this is an important moment for all of us. Unsurprisingly, Stephanie, I feel a lot like you and a lot unlike you. Um, I totally dig the the weight of this moment that is upon us, this notion that this year is somehow different. But for me, one of the ways in which it's going to be very different and it's already feeling very different. So, you know, I personally don't stream services, nothing against those. You don't stream on Shabbos? I don't stream on Shabbos or Yontif. And every year, this is one of the most meaningful periods um, of the year for me because, you know, I get to wear my beautiful white kittle and I get to go to shul and I get to sit and pray and really kind of be in this moment and really feel like you take time off. And this year you can't. Sorry. So you're saying you wear white after Labor Day? I freaking do. <laughs> Will you just and explain just, what that is, though, a kittle? Um, what, a, what a kittle is? <laughs> well, as our fashion correspondent, uh, let me introduce you to the beautiful. So a kittle is a, a uh, holy white gown slash shirt slash... Um, like lab coat. Like lab coat. It is a lab uh, coat. That's totally right. It's a lab coat. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> there you, uh, with, when you're in God's lab. With, with minimal ornament, uh, God's lab shul, uh, to paraphrase a popular venue. And, you know, Jewish men wear this. Uh, some Jewish men wear this on, on Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, or only Yom Kippur. Some wear it on Passover as well. Some wear it on their wedding day. Uh, many wear it for their burial. I think the idea is you get it for your wedding, you wear it on high holidays, mm -hmm. and you're buried in it. Those and are then like, you die in it. Do, do, do you put it on as you're gasping right. your last breath? Like, hold on. <laughs> just, just a sec. Hold on. I just got my, my left arm in. Hold on. Now let me cinch it. Okay. Okay. I'm ready to go. Haha. <laughs> that's so funny. For a dude like me who literally owns two pairs of pants, the idea that there is one garment that's sort of like one size fits every occasion. It's the ultimate one single use appliance, I would say. Oh my God. It's kind <laughs> of amazing. But the, the thing that kind of moves me the most this year is the idea is like, okay, I, I can't go to shul. And at first it like, it really hurt me and, and uh, was a source of great sort of consternation because I didn't know how to replicate this experience. But then I started thinking, you know, I got so used to the sort of like off the shelf solution. Like I put on my outfit and I go to the place and I do the thing and it's great. And all I have to do is sit back, relax and enjoy the the sermon. And this year I, I have to work. Uh, we're trying to organize. We're recording it uh, Monday before Shoshana. So I, I can't yet report how successful this will be, but we're trying to organize our own outdoor minyanim uh, in the park, which involves getting a Sefer Torah, which involves getting someone who could lane better than I can lane, which means actually knows how to do this properly. And on the one hand, it is such a massive Fabrengan production of this thing. On the other hand, it feels so invigorating because you're actually, it's like DIY Tishrei, right? Like you're actually doing the holidays. You're not just being Jewish, you're doing Jewish. You're like actually looking into every intricacy that goes into putting these sermons, these these services together and, and thinking about every 
aspect in a way that you never have a chance to do. So I'm, I'm kind of really psyched. Even if the whole thing falls through and I'll have to just sit at home and like read my machzor by myself, still having gone through this process would have been enough. Dayenu. It's interesting because it's sort of like what we discussed at Passover. I mean, there were so many millions of more seders this year just because people couldn't get to their families. And so I, I always sort of thought about it as like all these lights in these windows of people who were having their own seders for the first time. And they had to think about, what do I want to use as a seder plate? How do I want to you know, say these prayers? And and there's this idea that there's we have so much more agency in this because we don't have our natural avenues for just going over to who, whoever's house you go to, whoever's synagogue you go to, who getting the tickets. I mean... We really have to build this ourselves. And that's something I talk about with Aliza and Zoe from One Table. With. This is actually a really, really exciting opportunity in a lot of ways for people to remake these these traditions in their own lives. It's been that way for me, too. And, you know, a couple of things. I, although I'm not as Sabbath observant as Liel, I really try to stay away from technology on the Sabbath. I don't check my cell phone from Friday night to Saturday night. I don't get on the computer. And I've been very okay with the fact that my synagogue does not stream services. I know there are options out there for people who are housebound and want to get their services. But I really feel like this has been a period that has said, like, there's certain things we can't have, you know, and, and synagogue inside a building in our normal space has been one of them. That's hardly the biggest sacrifice we've been asked to make in the history of Judaism. People have suffered far more. Remember how we suffered. You know, it has thrown us back, as you both say, on our own resources. Like, what are we going to do? For me, one thing that's, that that's meant is saying, okay, I'm not going to get to services on Rosh Hashanah in the morning and the afternoon, maybe second day Rosh Hashanah, which sometimes I do, and Yom Kippur. I'm going to have to pick and choose because I can't organize all those for myself. My synagogue is doing some of them in our parking lot, but that's not super appealing to me. But the rabbi actually called me up or emailed me and said, would you preside over Tashlik at the river on Sunday afternoon? Because we can't do it on Saturday. Nice. So he said, would you run it second day Rosh Hashanah? That's a big honor, Mark. Wow. And I mean, it really just means... You know, someone else will be there below the shofar. People will bring their bread to throw it in the water. It's not a huge, like, I'll say a couple prayers and, like, get people started on a song that I hope someone else will pick up more tunefully than I do. It's five minutes. But but I love Tashlik. It was, like, so, it was, it was like, providential that he said, would you do this? Because that, taking the kids down to the river near our house, seeing people from our community, the Orthodox come, the conservatives, some secular people, like, people just happen by and figure out, oh, my God, it's Rosh Hashanah. I didn't even know. It's so beautiful. It's this outdoor event. One year, we literally saw a rainbow at Tashlik. Like, it had rained earlier in the day. and like That Jewish symbol, that auspicious Jewish symbol. You expected doves to fly overhead. And, you know, for me, that period of saying, like, I'm going to throw away the bad from last year, start the new year fresh, by the water, in nature, with lots of people, some of whom I love, some of whom I barely know, some of whom I've just met— that will stand in for probably several services that I would normally attend that I'm just not going to attend because I'm not going super out of my way to find a service at all costs this year. So I think it'll get really focused in on this one thing. Then providentially, my parents say, hey, can we come Friday night for dinner? Friday night is Erev Rosh Hashanah. And they are some of the only people we have. They're the only people we've had for dinner since the pandemic started. They were going to bring pizza. And we said, no, no, no. Actually, like I'll, I'm going to make a round challah. Sid will cook something like <laughs> And all of a sudden, we're going to rush to China dinner with the only people we can see in person That's up close. So it's a different year. I know it's inevitably worse for some people, and I don't want to forget them. But for a lot of people, I think it's going to be super memorable and special. I think it's actually a really big year for Tashlich, which is, you know, an outdoor ritual. You don't need a rabbi there. You just throw bread into the water, right? And there, you know, there's all sorts of rules about what kind of body of water it has to be. But I think this year, we, you know, we'll offer the dispensation that 
any bread into any water. Gluten-free, yep. doesn't matter. Gluten-free, like no um, natural outlet, you know, whatever whatever it is. But I think that that's the perfect example of a ritual that's really meaningful to people that doesn't require you to be indoors or to be at, a, you know, to pay to get into a synagogue, which sometimes is the case. I mean, I think this is kind of a beautiful new year and a beautiful new beginning. And I don't know. I'm moved, guys. I'm moved by this. And this year, even as we are forced to lose a little bit of the kind of official ritual, may we nevertheless find a lot of new light and meaning. Amen. Inshallah. And J. Crew, when you have some time, let us know how your high holidays were different this year. Call us at 914-570-4869 or write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. How was the beginning of 5781 unlike every other high holidays ever for you? Sweet, sweet, sweet J. Crew. Remember how I said I'm not asking for your money, I'm asking for your soul? Well, that's true. 282 of you, as of this morning, have already given something. And we don't care how much you give, but we want to get to 1,000. And we're at 282. Could you please go to bit.ly slash unorthodox 2020 fundraiser? That's bit.ly slash unorthodox 2020 fundraiser and give something. Maybe it's the cost of a Starbucks frappuccino. Maybe it's what you would have paid for a high holiday ticket this year. Maybe it's what you pay for a paperback book. Maybe it's what you used to put into the newspaper kiosk to get the Sunday newspaper. Maybe it's just what happens when you hit a bunch of number keys. We don't care. The point is we just want to get to a thousand of you. We want to know, do we have a thousand people who are all in? So go there right now, bit.ly slash unorthodox 2020 fundraiser and get us over the 282 donor hump so that when we next come to you, we can be lingering somewhere in the sweet, sweet upper echelons of 700 or 800 or, hey, even 1,000. Thank you so much for being part of the J. Crew. J. Crew, we have a virtual live show in October with Ort America. We have a very, very special guest, which we'll be announcing soon. And more information about the date and time and everything will be coming to you soon. So stay tuned. Lawson is the Jewish chaplain at Elon University. As a gay black rabbinical student, she got tired of having to constantly explain her Jewishness in interviews and in synagogues and in most Jewish spaces. So she wrote an essay which still lives on her website titled My Story. We talked to Rabbi Sandra about that essay as well as her high holiday plans on campus and why she finds social media to be such an effective tool as a rabbi.
Our Jewish guest today is Rabbi Sandra Lawson. She's a Reconstructionist rabbi, an activist, a public speaker, and a blues and bluegrass musician. She's also the Jewish chaplain at Elon University in North Carolina, where she is speaking to us from campus. Rabbi Sandra, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I, one of the blessings of COVID, because we need blessings in this moment, is I get to meet all kinds of people that I would have never met if we had been living life the way we used to. Well, I imagine you would have dropped everything to come up to our studio in New York in the middle of class, you know, like I know. <laughs> right. Not like you have other work to do. <laughs> Let's talk about services. As this airs, it's going to be a day before Rosh Hashanah. You work with college students. How are you going to do that this year? What's that going to look like for you at Elon? What we're doing is sort of a hybrid. Now, some campuses are completely tapping into Hillel International's virtual service, but our student leader said, you know, that's great. We want some of that, but we really need something that's ours. And that's something I think that's unique to our students. And so what we're going to do is for Erev Rosh Hashanah and Erev Yom Kippur, we're going to live stream the service. We're doing sort of like high holiday greatest hits, sort of hitting, you know, the marks that we need to mark. And it's going to be more student-led than our other high holiday services. And they're really taking ownership, you know, and I get to do my part of Kavanaugh and setting intentions and setting the mood and stuff like that. And so working with them has been really great. And then for day one, what we're going to tap into the offerings of Halal and National, which are featuring one of our students that day. And then we're going to do like a walking meditative tashlik to the body of water. And I'm going to have a megaphone and offer prayers and people will cast off their sins and then we'll come back in shifts. We're going to do it two, maybe three Tashlik services, but soon as we'll come back and have a Rosh Hashanah lunch. And then for Yom Kippur day, we'll tap into Hillel International offerings. And then we're going to do our own virtual Ne'ila, virtual Havdalah, and then uh, an in-person break fast. So that's our plan. So whenever we have a clergy member on, whether that is a rabbi or a priest, we always ask them their journey, their story, because we're always so interested in how people get called to this particular calling, you have helpfully put your whole story on your website because we are not the first people to ask you your story. And it's actually sort of an annoyance when people put that question on you, it seems. And you've actually written this up. So I I guess I want you to both tell us your story and tell us why the question of asking your story is so much more, you know, loaded. So that story that I put up, I should go back and edit it because I think I'm a better writer now. And it was also written from a perspective as a rabbinical student who felt like I didn't have a lot of power. I was in spaces where I didn't have a lot of power and I was exhausted and trying to figure out how to constantly answer racially biased questions or racist questions and get employment because part of rabbinical school is you have to work as part of your education. And I was being hit with racially uh, biased questions, racist questions when I would interview. In fact, uh, one interview I had, which led me to write the piece, and it was interviewing in an older congregation and they needed somebody to leave Friday night services. And I, you know, I was a second year rabbinical student and it was like a good fit. And so I was prepared to answer how I'm Jewish, how that happened. What I wasn't prepared for was to eat lunch with the president who could not get herself out of that narrative. She just kept going back. How are you Jewish? You're rabbinical school. Like, we shouldn't even interview me. It was not even an interview. And I was so frustrated by the process, but I still had to perform because, you know, you you interview and then you still have to lead services. And so I was, I was just like, I'm not getting this job, but I want to do the best that I could. And the tour portion lent itself, you know, it's when the three angels come to visit Avram after his surgery. So I basically drafted what is on the website as my sermon that night. 
And what I discovered was when it was time to give the Devar, I wove all that into the Devar. And when the president, who was quite rude to me, said, so do you have any questions for our candidate? And this wonderful woman in the front row, she's like, she's like, no, she answered them all. Let's go eat and drink. I just ate with them. We talked, you know, shared stories. It was like the wall was removed. And so I didn't want to have that experience again. And so on the advice of some people that I trust, I decided to write that. And at the time, my wife said I should use this as my personal business card. (laughs) And so what I did from that point on, when it was in a format that I liked, I um, would send my resume out and a link to that wherever it was living. I don't think it was living on my website. Did it work? It did work. But the thing is, is like, I shouldn't have to do that. That's something that what my white male colleagues didn't even realize that I had to do. It never occurred to them that I would have to explain so much of my personal life. Like, I never tell anything about my life. I'm like, I'm glad you have that luxury. Right. And so, right. yeah, and I still I still meet with racial bias, but like that was not a barrier anymore to interviewing because if somebody didn't want to interview me, they didn't have to interview me. It was just done. But if they interviewed me and they still were confused by me, that means they didn't do any of the reading that I sent them ahead of time. And that it's probably not a good fit. That doesn't exactly. sound like a place where intellectual thought and inquiry is happening in, in, in a Jewish space. Yeah, but these are these are challenges that I find in every Jewish space. Like they exist, whether it's a conservative congregation, older congregation, liberal one or whatever. It just plays out a little different and maybe a little bit more nuanced, but these are things that happen. Again, because we're obsessed with people's journeys, you were in the military. And I'm actually curious. I knew so few Jewish veterans growing up. I had some relatives who'd served in World War II. It was not a family of people who enlisted. But of course, there are lots of Jews who have served. And I'm curious, did you learn anything in the military that serves you well in the rabbinate? Are they, do they feed into each other at all? A lot of my adult formation happened in the military. So, you know, I learned how to plan. And if I want something, I became very goal-oriented in making that happen. So nothing that I really want to do is out of my reach. I just have to learn to backtrack and figure out how to make that happen. I used that same kind of strategy when I knew little to no Hebrew to get myself to rabbinical school. You know, I was in the military during my 20s, most of my 20s. Yeah, when I look at it, I think it was probably one of the best decisions I ever made. My high holiday planning, for example, in normal years, (laughs) you know, is very strategic. I block out time. I usually do it early in the morning before I have to do anything else because it's quiet. There's nothing clogging my brain. So for a couple of weeks, I would get up at like four in the morning from four to six. I would start the the process of figuring out what I was going to do for high holidays, create an outline. And then as I move further along the process, then I would bring other voices in and plan it, sort of plan it very particular, you know, but I'm not like my wife will tell you, I'm not like organized like like you would think a military person is. But when I the way I approach my work and planning, I definitely am. I know you sound very organized. <laughs> it sounds like you get up very early. Right. Four in the morning. <laughs> that's that sounds very military to me. When I was in rabbinical school, trying to like force myself to keep working when I was tired was not working for me. So instead of staying up later to work, I just got up early to work. Four in the morning and get my coffee and there's I know that I don't have to worry about anything. So there's nothing else interfering with my thought process. And I would get more done between four and six than if I had tried to struggle between eight and then 12 or something at night. So now you're on a college campus. Like, how early are the students, like, starting to email you? I know the students are Noon. <laughs> No, as soon as, no, I mean, if I get them to respond to email, like one, there's a lot of Instagram chatting and text chatting. So 
let's talk about technology for a minute. You have been noted by Jewish media as being a strong Snapchat rabbi, an Instagram rabbi. I am a huge social media skeptic. Talk me into this. Like, why is Snapchat and Instagram, why are these useful tools for Torah? Why are they useful tools for building community? Like, what do they do for your rabbinate? One of the things that I think Reconstructing Judaism has helped me with, the one thing I love about our movement is that we train rabbis where they are and help them to become the rabbis that they want to be. We're not trying to fit rabbis into a particular model of how to be a rabbi. And we're also very pluralistic. And that serves well, especially working working with students. Because I'm not coming in with this, we must do it this way. Now, I do have some things that I, I think we should do. And students have pushed me on a little bit. And I bend a little bit because it is really about them and helping them develop their own Jewish identity. But one of the things that has always been very important to me is to make Judaism accessible and to make Judaism relevant and how it speaks to our time. And yes, I can write long sermons. I've given long speeches, you know, and I could write, you know, long essays on the importance of Judaism. But we live in a pop culture kind of now where people, as they go about their day, just need a little nugget of something. And I take things in the world and I sort of Jewify them, make them Jewish. And my students, like, whether they listen to me or watch me or whatever, they're seeing their rabbi interact on their platforms in ways that Thankfully, more rabbis are doing now. But when I started doing this, there weren't a lot of us out there. And and so for me, I see all those as just another tool to do what I call, which I didn't invent this term, public theology. So, I, so, so Judaism doesn't just live in a synagogue or a college campus. It needs to interact with the public. And I imagine that now more so than ever, right? If your students are not, if you're not gathering weekly with them, this way of reaching particularly your younger audience, that is really effective. Yeah. And so for many of my colleagues who have been very resistant to social media are now sort of struggling to figure out Zoom for one or how to be on the screen, how to connect with people on the screen. Those are skills that nobody's teaching in rabbinical school. I bet you they will be from now on. You know, I have a, a, fr- a colleague, a friend who really wants to be, sees this as a tool, but is sort of hesitant. And she's not the only one. I know a lot of these actually. And I just say to, I just, I say to all of them, just do it. This is not about highly produced stuff. Just get on the thing and blow your shofar. Or just get out and say, hey, good morning, Boca Tov. So you're now, you're kind of like over Snapchat. You're on TikTok. And there is a TikTok video that I've told you that I love, which is basically you are in the frame explaining the story of Shavuot. Hey, what's up? It's Rabbi Sandra, and I want to talk a little bit about this holiday that's coming up, the holiday of Shavuot. Now, on the holiday of Shavuot, we celebrate not only receiving the Ten Commandments, but we celebrate receiving the entire Torah on Mount Sinai. On this holiday, we also read from the Book of Ruth, the story of a poor, marginalized woman who pretty much existed on the welfare of the times by gleaning the edges of fields in order to survive. Ruth, this poor, marginalized woman, this convert to Judaism, would later become the great-grandmother to King David. On this holiday, we also read Parsha Yitro, the story of Moses' non-Israelite, non-Jewish father-in-law who would create a democratic system so great that we still use it today. Now, on this holiday of Shavuot, let's remember that diversity enriches our lives. So let's celebrate the diversity that exists within the Jewish community and remember that diversity makes us stronger. All right, have a great week. You say on the bottom, you're like, yes, women can be rabbis. Yes, rabbis wear pants. Yes, LGBTQ people are rabbis. Like, there's a way in which you're actually getting across your messages in such a clear and cogent way that most rabbis actually cannot do. 
I am really inspired. I'm much less of a cynic than Mark is. I'm all about reaching these these Jewish people where they are. And I'm really moved by this. And I also feel like you really did have a leg up when all of a sudden everyone is online now. You don't have to figure out all this stuff and make it feel forced. Has this taken an expanded role in your life now, now that things are more virtual? It's definitely part of my rabbinate. It's definitely part of how I have chosen to be a rabbi in the world. But I also like being in synagogue. I like traditional rabbi roles too. Young people who learn how to use these platforms and learn how to use them well are actually developing skills that will serve them in the future. But each platform is different. Like that TikTok video, the writing was more in response to the sexist, (laughs) racist comments that I got. And so instead of arguing with people, I just like, yeah, yeah. Like, cause like, why are you wearing pants? And I had some people say rabbis can't wear pants. And then what they were trying to say is women aren't supposed to wear pants. I was going to say lots of rabbis wear pants. (laughs) That's actually a really, I mean, we actually live, my family and I, near Charlie D'Amelio, who is a high school student in, I think, Trumbull, Connecticut, who's the number one most followed TikTok dance. Oh, yeah, though. yeah, yeah, yeah. You said Charlie and I, I gendered the name. But yeah, Female, I yeah. About. And like my kids, we joke about like when we drive past that exit on I-95, I'm like, that's the TikTok. You know, I think of it as good for music. And I don't think of it, but of course I'm not on it, as good for teaching Torah. And I just saw that and I was like, this is wonderful. You know, if if, TikTok, if this is TikTok, sure, sign me up. Yeah. So like one of the first videos where I sort of introduced myself as Rabbi Sandra is me in a cowboy hat and wearing t-shirts from a company called Shmati's, like kosher cowboy or cowgirl. And I had this cowboy hat on and they were just stills. And the attention that that got where people were like, what? You know, and there weren't a lot of rabbis on TikTok. Or if they were, they were just sort of quiet. And this was also in COVID. And so many observant young people who couldn't go to synagogue. And then when camps started closing, were craving Jewish content. And that just sort of skyrocketed some of the videos that I do. Like the young people, they love it if I post, even if I don't do it well, a camp song. They're like, oh my God, this reminds me of camp. I'm so, you know, and I'm like, that's why I'm doing this because I I feel bad that you can't go to camp either. College students are hungry for Jewish stuff. They may not like how it's presented, but they strongly identify as Jews and and want to be part of the Jewish community. But they may not like the way the Jewish community has been presented to them. So, you know, trying to find new ways to uh, connect with them. Our students, um, one of the things I I hope, I'm in my third year here, and I hope I'm breaking our students of this habit. Oh, I'm just a cultural Jew. I'm just this Jew. I'm just that Jew. I'm like, "You're, you're a Jew. Like, We all come to Judaism in many ways, and there are points along the way that we love more than others. And so honoring however you celebrate Judaism. And one of the things I've also tried to do is make a lower bar for celebrating Shabbat. Like people are like, I don't know the prayers, I don't know this. Let's just come together. I'll teach you a blessing. Or we did mindfulness Shabbat last Shabbat, where a student led a mindfulness where we stood socially distanced and did some meditative breathing. Um, she's like, so what about the religious piece? I said, well, we'll do that. You'll, you know, this is this is part of your belief system and you believe in mindfulness and so do I. And then as far as like the religious piece, I'll get on this chair and I'll say some words with like rabbis do about the Torah portion and then we'll light candles, drink wine and eat challah. She's like, really? I said, yes. <laughs> and it was great. Students loved it. it was, so like trying to bring them into the things that we do so that they can show off and show how they celebrate Judaism or they celebrate whatever they do and then lifting that up so other students can see it and they can bring their stuff as well. That's what I hope I'm doing. 
Let's talk about music, because this is another place in which you have fused your broader interests and your Jewish message. You are a blues and bluegrass musician. You have something called the Torah of the Blues. And on your YouTube page, which you obviously have, we can watch really fun videos of you sitting on the porch and singing songs Jewish and not. Will you tell us a little bit about that evolution? I've always had a fascination for guitars and always in my mind, I was a musician, even though I didn't really do anything about it. I knew how I knew chords, you know, like, so my second year of rabbinical school, I was taking a modern Hebrew class. And so one of the reasons why I was able to get into rabbinical school, I think so, is that I, I, I looked at Hebrew like a puzzle, like I could actually figure out what the words <laughs> were. One of my teachers called it decoding or something like that. Like there's a, there's a rhyme and rhythm to Hebrew. And I figured I could connect with the puzzle and answer questions. But because I wasn't hearing a lot of Hebrew, I couldn't talk, like I couldn't really have a conversation. And so this class is a modern Hebrew class that teach you how to, to talk in Hebrew. So I could take tests and I was doing tests well, but my wonderful teacher, Tirza, told us that we had to teach the class for 10 minutes. And I panicked as everybody was leaving the class. She made a beeline for me. She's like, I know. And she's also Israeli and like all the soft and not so soft ways. She's like, I know, just just do anything. <laughs> just don't read. Don't read. Because if I could read, I'd be okay. Just like, just so I go home and I write this script of what I'm supposed to teach. And I can't embody the Hebrew. Like I couldn't do it without reading. It didn't, you know, it didn't matter how many times I practiced. And so I was like, I'm gonna fail this class. I'm never gonna be a rabbi. And so I decided to grab my guitar and try to sing song it so I could remember it. But that didn't work either. And so it was like one of these late night things. And I was like, okay. And then I rewrote the script and I turned the entire lesson into a song with like two chords. And then I had my iPad with the lyrics and then the student, my classmates could see the lyrics on the screen. I thought I was sort of cheating, but I couldn't show up with nothing. Like, and I did a part of it without the script. I had a puppet show where I, did, I took two sock puppets or whatever, but either way. So I'm like, I'm screwed. Look, my classmates love it. Everybody was singing the song. I don't even know where the song is today. Tirza comes over at the, when the class ends. She's like, oh my gosh. She's like, that was awesome. And she's like, every year since I come through the same thing over and over again. But you, that's just like amazing. And so then she said, but now let's talk about the grammar. And I said, yeah, when I wrote the song, grammar went out there window. She was like, you know, this ain't right. This ain't right, right grammar. But she's like, but that was so creative. And then I thought that was the end of it. And one of my advisors said, like, I never knew you played guitar. I said, nobody knew I played guitar because I really don't. <laughs> she's like, well, you should do something with that. <laughs> So after that, I tried to learn songs and it actually helped me while I was in rabbinical school, not just learn prayers, but sort of understand what they mean. Because traditional Jewish music, like Ashkenazi, Eastern European Jewish music is not part of my background. And so I would change songs and write my own sort of music to them so that I could learn them for me. And that's how, like, the song that I, I sing, uh, Kaddish, that's how that kind of came about. Here we are cruising out of 5780 into 5781. 5780 has been a hard year. Yeah, it's um, us. In so many ways. Do you have some bits of Torah wisdom or rabbinic wisdom for how to be better Jews, better Americans, better people in 5781? I do. Um, I'm a firm believer that if you follow the Jewish calendar and the Torah portion of the Talmud or wherever you are in our text, what you need for that moment will come up. We're in the last part of the month of Elul, you know, reflecting, asking for forgiveness, thinking about all the stuff that we have done to prepare ourselves to move into the new year. 
similar to how our prayer liturgy works in the morning. We have all these gratitude blessings where we thank God for the thank you for breathing life into me. You created me, you shaped it, all this stuff about gratitude. And we get to our call to prayer because now we're open and we're ready to receive what God is calling for us to receive. And so this month of Elul, is, I see it as, as similar to that. And this week's Torah portion, which is always read the Shabbat before Rosh Hashanah, is Nitzavim. Nitzavim ve'elef. It's a double Torah portion. And Nitzavim means, to, is translated as to stand and ve'elef is to like, go forth. And basically it's like, in English, it's like, you stand before God. And basically it's, you know, it's Moses' last speech and it's not a happy pep talk, but he basically says, if you do all the things that God says to do, you'll receive all the blessings. And if you don't, you die. Or if you don't, you, you'll be cursed. But we stand all of us stand there ready to receive. And the Torah is really particular in an unusual way. It says like the rich people were there, the noble people were there, the woodchucker and the water carrier. That's like, okay, rich people, poor people. And to what I'm telling my students this week, you know, that means we were all standing there. That means people you disagree with, people who have different political persuasions than you, people that you don't like, and of course, just the people that you love. And so we all want to get rid of 2020. This is an opportunity to start new before everybody else and to bring in all the goodness that we want to bring in and keep the bad stuff, but learn from it as we go forth, Baalach, into the new year. I should write that down. I just made it up. <laughs> I like that. That's great. There you go. It's interesting because I hear what you're saying about how you break the rules and you know, you're know you always trying the new. On the other hand, you have the most old school job in the world. I mean, I was actually like, rabbis are such old souls in a beautiful way. I mean, they're saying like, what I want to do is live with these texts that are so much older than we are and that persist in their relevance. So I, I think it seems to me you have like a real old person job. And I mean that as a compliment. You're absolutely right. I am the carrier of thousands. That's how I see rabbis. They were sort of the carrier of thousands of years of history in our brain. And we're trying to make it work for the generations at whatever time period we're living in. And nobody harder to make it work for than college students. So you have my, <laughs> you have my gratitude. <laughs> Rabbi Sandra Lawson, thank you so much for being our Jew of the Week. We really appreciate having you on. Happy New Year to you. Shana Tova. Thank you. And thank you for letting us end 2020 like a few months early, for giving yeah. us that rabbinical dispensation. <laughs> That was Rabbi Sandra Lawson. If you are on TikTok or Twitter or any of those places, she's at Rabbi Sandra. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y.
Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash uomember and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Stephanie spoke with Elisa Klein and Zoe Plotsky of One Table, which helps young Jews join together for Shabbat meals, and they talked about a new program to make this Rosh Hashanah meaningful. I am here with Elisa Klein and Zoe Plotsky of One Table, an organization that brings Shabbat dinner into the home and apartments of people all over the country. Welcome to you both. Hi, Stephanie, Aliza. I am the co-founder and CEO of One Table. Been involved since our earliest days. And I'm Zoe on the One Table team, currently community strategist, working on all sorts of different projects. What is One Table? Our goal is to help literally tens of thousands of people find connection through the ritual of Shabbat dinner. But rather than us hosting one massive Shabbat dinner, the idea is to actually create a platform by which thousands of individuals have the resources, the tools, the financial support, the tech support, the Shabbat coaching, the challah recipes, the cheerleading, whatever it needs for them to actually create the experience on their own. So we want to normalize this as a practice for people that they can do on their own, on their own terms. And it's now happened almost 40,000 times for close to 200,000 people. Wow. So if I wanted to host a dinner, how would I use One Table? What would I do? So you go to onetable.org. Tell us a little bit about yourself. What's motivating you to do this? What are your concerns? What do you most need in terms of support? We vet you. We want to make sure that you're not an asshole. That's pretty much the vetting process is to make sure that if you are going to be hosting other young Jews on behalf of One Table, primarily that you're a good person, kind and generous and kind of motivated by the right things. It's not about a religious agenda. It's really about creating community and helping you grow as a person, as a host, as a Jew. And then you are approved, hopefully. And then you post your first dinner and we provide you with what we call nourishment credit, which is financial support comes in the form of a gift card to groceries or prepared foods. Or right now you can use it for CVS to get your own masks and measuring tapes and whatever else you need to help do this safely. And then you have 
the support, the resources, you've described the dinner, and your friends would actually RSVP through the app or the online platform as well so that you can manage the dinner and learn and experience. And we'll check in on you. So our field managers, their whole job is to say, does Stephanie have what she needs to feel all set? So they'll check in on you so that you can say, oh my God, thank you. I don't remember how to do this or that, or I got it. And then they'll say, great. And then they'll check on with you after and see how it went and say, you ready to do it again? And that becomes the whole purpose is to see if we can help you feel so good about it that it's actually a practice you want to build. So we are talking on the eve of the high holidays and the pandemic hit sort of just before Passover. And that sent everyone into this like DIY scramble. How do I host my first Passover Seder? I'm not with my bubby. I'm really sad. Like there was a lot of emotions there. We're sort of still doing this for the high holidays, which I don't think everyone necessarily imagined. What is your approach? And will you tell us about your new High Holiday Initiative? You know, we certainly observed both through our Seder efforts and through the One Table Shabbat, like a really aching, yearning need for connection and also a high level of sadness and anxiety of it just not being the way it has been in the past. Now, we should not forget that for a lot of people, the holidays suck and so does Seder and so does Shabbat. And it's a time when they feel like they don't belong. And so the question is, what actually can we learn about those folks who were now all kind of in the same boat. We just don't know the clear path that can lead us to feel even more isolated and pretty sad during this time, or it can really be an opportunity for enormous creativity. I think that One Table's approach is to name those feelings and then with as much generosity and forgiveness and gentleness and permission, just invite you to figure out how can we help you make it your own. High holidays have this synagogue connection. You either go joyfully, you love it, you go because of obligation, or you don't go, and not going often has guilt associated with it too. And you don't have those choices the same way this year. And I think that can potentially be liberating. It puts us all on an even playing field. And the question is, how might we help you find the resources the same way we would with Shabbat to actually create a family experience in a way that actually deepens your connection to the Jewish calendar, deepens your connection to the need for renewal, for teshuva, for the forgiveness, all those places. So herefor.com is our attempt to actually invite people to have a platform for the holidays in the same way. How is Stephanie going to find a connection on Rosh Hashanah? Here are different resources that she can use for her home. Here are things that she can attend online. Here are things that she could download and do with a friend. And we have partners, more than 40 so far who are generating all kinds of beautiful content, all with the same motivation of empowering and supporting individuals to feel like they are supported. We named it here for, and the idea is like, we are here for you so that you can be here for others. No, this is great. I mean, I clicked on find a gathering and I'm seeing all of these things like a virtual cooking class with Michael Solomonov, but also, you know, death over dinner, like a lot of real interesting events and conversations. And I'm curious, Zoe, you know, you really have your ear to the ground. I'll say, you know, full disclosure, you do a lot of work for Tablet as well. You've been really an essential resource for us, particularly in like the social media world. And I'm curious, what have you noticed from the past six months? I mean, you've obviously been part of this movement to get millennials specifically to do Shabbat, which is sort of like an easy access point for Judaism. How has that changed over the pandemic? What have you seen? Honestly, I think that Shabbat has never been cooler for millennials. And I see it on Instagram. I really see it from my peers on Instagram. People are baking challah every week. People are not doing sourdough. They're not baking cinnamon buns anymore, but they're really still baking challah. And you see it every Friday. If you're already working from home, why not try it? And also seeing some people launch challah businesses. I have a number of friends in the food world 
who hospitality is a crazy world right now and maybe they don't have the same work that they did before, people are selling challah at scale. And I think it's really wild to watch people just go through these old cookbooks that they weren't looking at before and just like try to connect to Jewish through baking challah, baking babka. I've never seen so many people bake babka. And I'm really curious what people are going to start baking around the high holidays. You know, it's funny because at the beginning... I, too, did this. I, I did a bunch of hollow baking workshops right in you know March and before Passover. And it was this sense for me. I mean, I don't bake challah typically. I don't do Shabbat dinner. I, yes, I work in a Jewish space, so I do get, you know, I feel like I get it out during the week. But all of a sudden, everyone wanted to feel like Friday was different. Like this was such a big win for Shabbat because no one knew what any day was. People, particularly who are lucky enough to be at home, we're just in this like abyss of time and space. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's like one of the most beautiful things about Shabbat. And this time is like, it's a reminder that it exists. We talk a lot about ritual being like this technology, this tool to turn off like between the week and the weekend. And I think that's only needed more now. And so having these rituals to like bake challah, have your house smell different, and just do something different than you would the other days has been such an incredible tool. You know, Lisa, what are you hoping to see this Rosh Hashanah in how people use your offerings? It's basically, it's three R's, rhythm, relationship, and reckoning. The rhythm of the need to demarcate the weekend. If those of us who are living at work, working from home, whatever, like you just cannot wait to close your computer and to have a glass of wine and anything that works as a ritual, people are so hungry for, for this rhythm sense. We had one person talk about six Tuesdays and a Shabbat, right? Like I can never tell the difference between Tuesday and Wednesday. Like if someone asked me right now, I don't think I could answer that question. This is like beyond the week. It's actually the calendar of the year. So how might the holidays actually people feel connected to the rhythm of the Jewish people, our cycle of holidays, this thing that's bigger than each of us. And also that's been going on for a long time. Like we've been celebrating the high holidays for thousands of years. So there's something to me about both the gratitude and the humility of the rhythm of our Jewish calendar that I really hope that connects. The second R was really relationship. We've all lost our casual relationships. We're not going to see those people, you know, in shul. They always sit in the same seat. But the relationships of the people that we are living with are deeper and deeper and deeper. And so how might the Jewish holidays also be an opportunity for us to tell people in our family that we love them? The high holidays is supposed to be this practice. You're supposed to ask for forgiveness for yourself and then for your community. Like what if that we people really did that this year? Called their beloved, their siblings, you know, all the people that we piss off and we hurt inadvertently and consciously and actually began that conversation. Like that to me is amazing and so deep. And the third piece is reckoning. Could the holidays become this opportunity for people to imagine the way the world could be and take steps to do it. So if you're not going to services on Yom Kippur, what can you take steps toward? What can you do a walk with people? And can you actually make decisions with each step as to the, the commitment you want to make for the new year? Like before those gates close, who do you want to be? And I think it fits exactly into the liturgy of the holidays. Like I'm sad. I am so incredibly sad to miss the experience that I always have, but I am really curious to see what I can get to instead without the, the institutional framework around me. Aliza Klein, Zoe Plotsky, thank you so much. Our listeners can check out Here For at herefor.com and OneTable at OneTable.org across all the social media and IRL as well. Thank you both for being here. Thank you. Our 
returning Gentile of the Week is Father James Martin. He is an American Jesuit priest, writer, and editor-at-large of the Jesuit magazine America. He's also, I would say, our favorite, our favorite Jesuit and our favorite Gentile. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. That's such a great introduction. One of our favorite rabbis. <laughs> Toda. Yeah, when I was about to introduce you, I kept wanting to say Rabbi James Martin, which is crazy. That's a promotion. <laughs> so, Father Martin, you last appeared on our show. It was episode 121. It was January of 2018. It was a live show in Manhattan with Judy Gold. You guys really hit it off. I think you went on her podcast afterwards. I did. I love her. She's terrific. I love her. So this is like pandemic season. Every Zoom call has to start with that, like, how how are you doing? How are you? I'm fine. I'm healthy. My family's healthy. My Jesuit community is healthy. We lost a lot of Jesuits in our infirmaries uh, in Philadelphia and in other places. And so that was very depressing. My window looks on to Mount Sinai Hospital. And so when I would open my window in the morning, I would see you know, all the hospital rooms. You could see what was going on. And there were refrigerator trucks for the temporary morgues, a lot of ambulances. So it was, it's been sad, but I'm continuing on. And like everybody working from home, compared to most people, I'm doing fine. You wrote a book on humor and you're, you know, a funny guy, especially for a priest. And I've been thinking a lot lately about how hard it is to be funny at a time when everyone's either sad or angry. Judy Gold, in fact, has written a book about this, basically saying like, if we lose humor, we've lost everything. And I I'm curious, is it okay to be funny? Like, should we still be trying? There is this way in which some people, if you crack a joke right now, look at you like, wait, didn't you get the memo? Everything is serious right now. And I don't know, as as a Jew and an Oppenheimer, I rebel against that. But what's your feeling about that? Well, and as a Catholic and as a Martin, I rebel against that. I would say one of the points of that book was that joy, humor, and laughter are an essential part of the spiritual life for about a million reasons. It gives you perspective. It gives you a break. You know, as you all know, the Bible is filled with humor. You know, it's a question of time and perspective. I mean, we're smart enough to know when it's appropriate and when it's not. You know, someone's telling you that their father or mother have the coronavirus. It's not the time for your favorite joke. But I think it can lighten people's loads. And I think it, it gives us some perspective. I, I don't know what I do without humor. Well, what about, you know, with politics, were people as humorless in 1968 as they are now? It's not like we haven't been through moments of intense political trauma, of intense racial reckoning before. But I don't think that people ever got as humorless as they are getting in 2020. Tell me, like 1968, Watergate, 1974, 9-11, did people just stop laughing for months at a time? Yeah, I mean, I was like you, I was, I was seven, so who knows? <laughs> but I think that people are a lot more sensitive now. It's good and bad. I mean, people are sensitive about different kinds of jokes and, you know, jokes about, you know, all sorts of groups women, blacks, minorities, LGBTQ people. I mean, that's good. That's healthy, right? Jewish people. But I think that's made us a lot more cautious. And so people are, I think, are afraid of being funny. You know, they're afraid of being called out for an inappropriate joke. I think social media has made it more difficult. But I think it's essential. You have to laugh. You know, there's such thing as gallows humor. So I'm writing a book on prayer and uh, it's coming out in February. And I was talking about, you know, how God can lighten us even in the midst of difficult times. And I told the story of my father's funeral. There was some Irish music being played at the wake. You know, it was kind of sad Irish music, which is basically all Irish music. <laughs> and we heard them, it was like on a boombox. The funeral director turned the cassette over and suddenly it was this, this Irish Rover song, It's a Great Day for the Irish, which is this like this kind of upbeat song. You know, his body was in the casket in front of us. And we all started laughing. And this friend of mine said, well, it's not a great day for one of the Irish. <laughs> and I said, well, it actually is a great day. He's in heaven. 
So look, there's like in the midst of probably one of the saddest days of my life, I mean, I was able to laugh and it was, it was healthy too. Right. And I'm sure my dad was having a laugh too. We recently had a conversation with uh, Jonathan Sachs, the English rabbi, and he has written that by and large clergy should not talk politics from the pulpit. They shouldn't be coming out for or against political leaders. And, and basically they should keep their politics pretty private, that they can talk about issues. But the second that they start kind of giving away who they're supporting or which party they're, they're down for, they end up being divisive. And also I think kind of they end up descending to earth and temporal times when they should be keeping people's eyes on the more eternal. What's your feeling about that? I would agree that you should never endorse, certainly. I don't think religious figures should endorse. That needs a clarification. You know, sometimes when you talk about issues that are appropriate to religion, for example, care for the poor, right? I mean, that's something in the in the Hebrew scriptures and in the New Testament, care for migrants and refugees, right? Welcoming the stranger. Sometimes that has political implications. And, uh, you know, I think if it has political implications, so be it, right? So I'm, I'm not going to not defend migrants and refugees and the poor and ask people to care for the sick because people think it has political overtones. Okay. I would disagree with the idea of things being kind of loftier because I think we find God in the temporal realm. But no, I mean, I think in general, I agree because what it does, unfortunately, is when you endorse, it splits your congregations. And it forces people to take sides. Here in your synagogue, and the rabbi gets up and says, which I can't imagine, you know, the rabbi gets up and said, you all should vote for this person, just, you know, bluntly. It divides the congregation, and it makes some people feel less welcome. Uh, and also just, you know, from a practical point of view, frankly, religious organizations are tax exempt, and they should not be if they're endorsing people. So I, in general, I would agree with the rabbi. But there must be all sorts of times when it's kind of a distinction without a difference. I mean, if you get up and give the sermon in which you say, don't put children in cages, it must feel a little bit like sometimes like, okay, I should just come out and say it. That's a good point. I was invited to pray at the Democratic Convention, and I made it a point to, when I talked about protecting vulnerable lives, I made a point to talk about the unborn child in the womb and the black man or the black woman who was fearing for their lives and the refugee and the migrant. So, you know, I think when you do it, there's ways of doing it that can be inclusive. Okay, so so people can intuit what I'm thinking politically, but I think it's really important not to endorse. I think that's really important. And the Catholic Church has been very clear about that. We're not supposed to, and we don't. Now, some bishops recently have been getting close, and I, I don't think that's good. Do you feel, however, that living now in the age of Twitter, a, a medium in which you're active, and might I add, really great at proficient very more than that i mean incredible do you feel that it has changed the role of clergy in as much as that your engagement and involvement with the world and i mean the world in the most immediate timely like the right here and right now is enhanced or is it decreased because you feel like the conversation focuses less on holy matters and more on profane matters or earthly matters? Is it a little bit of both? What is it? I think it's a little bit of both. I think that the Jesuit approach is uh, finding God in all things. And that includes in the profane, you know, even something like the elections, right, to help people form their consciences. But I would say it's a two-edged sword. On the one hand, you know, it helps people like me and other people who are interested in religion mix it up and contribute to the, the conversation and the public square. On the other hand, the conversation in public square is sometimes horrible. I've just recently set my Twitter account to limit people who can respond to me only to people who I follow, which is, you know, unfortunate, but I'm tired of getting all these horrible, hateful, homophobic, racist, anti-Semitic sometimes tweets back. So it's a two-edged sword. I still think it's worth being in the public square. My favorite are the people who say like, and you call yourself a Catholic. You're not a real Catholic. 
be like, guys, how much, how much more do I need to do to convince you of this fact? Oh no, I mean, and that's actually that's actually the polite ones. Publicly, it's okay for people to hate again, you know, and so that's been unleashed. And so you can hate this Catholic priest on Twitter and say that he's going to hell and he's a heretic and he's an apostate and he's this and he's a pansy and he's a lot of other words that I can't use. And I think that's, to me, the most surprising thing, that people can think that that's acceptable behavior. And sometimes these are so-called religious people. I always say, look, there are crazy people and there are crazy religious people. And the crazy religious people are crazier than the crazy people because they think they have God on their side. Usually when you talk to people about the stage that we're in from a, from a kind of, shall we say, metaphysical perspective, you get one or two answers, right? One is we are as low as we've ever sunk. We are in this kind of very particular purgatory-like moment from which it's going to be very difficult, if not impossible, to emerge. And the other is some variation on the theme of it's always darkest before dawn. It's very, very troubling right now, but we're about to experience this great new awakening. First of all, do you buy into this dichotomy? And if you do, which one of these two realities do you think we live in? That's a really good question. You know, it reminds me, ironically, of 9-11. At 9-11, people said, everything's going to change. You know, and in fact, very little changed. I mean, we went to war, which was a big change, but I think in terms of American culture, very little changed. Um, you know, the, here's something you won't hear from a Jesuit a lot. I'm not sure. <laughs> right? I do think that there's a kind of disgust with the way that politics in particular has been set forth, but I would say without endorsing anyone, I would say that uh, the conversation depends a lot on who the next president is. And I would say that if one person is elected, it will go one way. If another person is elected, it will go another way. I really do think that the conversation has been dominated and in many cases excused by President Trump, I will say that. And I think that his way of interacting in the public square, I think has coarsened things. I think I can say that legitimately. And I think it's given permission for people who have felt that in the past that their views were so reprehensible, they had to keep them quiet or private that they don't, they no longer have to do that. I think my biggest fear is that, you know, when we think about things like racism, particularly racism, racism, but also homophobia, anti-Semitism, which of course is on the rise. I think one of the things that makes me sad, and Mark, you were talking about 1968, I think in past decades, it was seen as something that you would hide and you would be embarrassed about. And you would, you would never want anyone to think you were racist or homophobic or, or anti-Semitic or misogynistic. Now, strangely, it doesn't seem to bother people. So yes, you know, people say I am a white supremacist. And yes, I do think Jews are like this and women are like this. And that I think is really shocking to me. So people are basically saying, yes, I am sinful and it doesn't bother me. In response, though, we have seen, you know, this amazing summer of, of protests and the Black Lives Matter movement. I mean, something that I've seen that's been really amazing is just the amount of visible Jews, right? Rabbis out there with their congregations. Is that something that is, you know, it's sort of a, an offshoot of the politics and the pulpit conversation, right? It's how much do religious leaders get involved in social justice movements? Um how is that reflected in the Jesuit community? I mean, is that sort of are these same conversations that we're hearing in the Jewish community, like rabbi saying, I must be out there marching because I need to show my congregants that this is an important cause? Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, I think ironically, I think that rabbis and Jewish congregations are actually freer to do that because oftentimes if a, if a Catholic priest does that with his parish or a Jesuit does that, they have to get all sorts of permissions. So is the bishop or the archbishop or the cardinal okay with this? You know, traditionally, Jewish congregations are a little more independent, so they have a little more freedom to do that. But certainly, the desire is really there among the Jesuits, and there have been a lot of Jesuits who have participated in Black Lives Matter and have written about it as well, which is something we do a lot. But there's a lot of soul-searching because 
I think the difficulty is that, you know, if you're a progressive Jesuit in a traditional minded parish or community or school, you know, your congregants may not be behind you or the parents in the, in the high school or the college may not be behind you. And what do you do? Is it in some way fostering disunity? So that's the difficulty, I think. And I'm, I, I would imagine the same is true for a lot of Jewish congregations and temples and synagogues. Totally in the way that this has become politicized somehow, right? Like this idea is if you're going out there, you believe this, 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 and this, as opposed, you know, it's less nuanced than it is in reality, right? To a congregation in some ways. And I think one of the terrible things that's happened in the Catholic community, which I just think is, is appalling. And I have a good friend named Olga Segura, who you know from uh, mm-hmm. uh, Jesuitical. She's now working for National Catholic Reporter. She's doing a book on Black Lives Matter in the Catholic Church. One of the terrible things is that Black Lives Matter movement, which is kind of a, a big, I don't want to say disorganized, but it's, it's larger than just the official Black Lives Matter Inc. That's been targeted with all sorts of accusations of being Marxist and they're Marxist. And of course, they pull out kind of certain quotes that certain people have said, and they therefore turn a lot of conservative or traditional Catholics against them. And so then, you know, if you march as a pastor, you say, oh, well, you're supporting a Marxist group. You're not a good Catholic, which is just pathetic, you know, because the bishops have been really strong about racism being a sin, but they should have been, they should be a little stronger. Can I tell you a story that I love about the Catholic Church and racism? Please. So there's a guy named Ralph McLeod, and Ralph McLeod is the head of, uh, I think it's Catholic Charities in Washington or the Catholic campaign for human development, one or the other. He's African-American. He's a just great guy. He's this very important Catholic lay leader. Anyway, he was uh, on a business trip in some unfamiliar city. And so like any good Catholic on the weekend, he looked up where the masses were. So he gets his rental car, he drives over, he walks in at like the 10 o'clock mass. And it's, you know, predominantly as most Catholic churches are white, you know, it's a white congregation. So this priest comes up to him, the pastor who's white, and says, oh, excuse me, you do know that this is a Catholic parish, don't you? And Ralph said, yes, Father, I do. Do you know that this is a Catholic parish? (laughs) So the bishops and Catholic priests have not been as strong on racism as they should be, and certainly not as strong as they have been on migrants and refugees. So we're, we're getting there, though. We are now in the midst of the Hebrew month of Elul, which is the month in which we are required to do cheshbon nefesh, to do a real kind of deep dive into the state of our soul and our spirit and really prepare ourselves for the high holidays and Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and and really take stock of our sins and virtues alike. As you are one of, and I say this utterly unironically, one of my favorite, most cherished rabbis and teachers, someone who I, I value greatly, how do we sit down in this age of so many distractions? How do we sit down and really take the time to pray, to reflect, to be in that zone that the month of Elul requires us to do? That's a great question. And I, I've been thinking about that, well, for the last 30 years as the Jesuit, but for the last five years working on this book. Part of it is thinking about it as a relationship. So thinking about prayer and your spirituality as a relationship with God. And to compare it to a relationship, you would ask the same question. What, what do I need to do with spending time with my wife or my spouse or whatever? And you would say, well, certainly it, it requires time. So you would need to carve out some time for one-on-one time with your wife or in this case with God. So let's say that's 15, 20, 30 minutes a day. Uh, The second thing is you try to be honest in that relationship, right? So when you're praying, you try to be honest. And then to your point, the third thing is to be okay with distractions. Just yesterday, two days ago, I was with a young Jesuit who was complaining about being distracted in prayer. And one of the prayers that I always like to teach people is this, God, I am distracted and I am with you. (laughs) (laughs) because that's okay. Now, I always use this example. Now, imagine 
if you and I were out to dinner and I said, I'm really sorry, it's great to be with you. I'm really sorry, but I'm a little distracted because I just got some bad medical news, but it's, it's good to be with you. Now, what would your reaction be to that? Oh no, are you okay? What's going on? Tell me about it. And what, how would you feel toward me? Would you be angry or would you be open or? I would be happy that you shared this thing because I would feel more connected to you and actually wouldn't mind spending the rest of the night like helping you feel better. Leo, how about you? Same exact thing. All right. So if, if both of you could be with me in my distraction and were happy for me just to be honest, how much more can God be like that? So if you're distracted, just to be distracted and to share that with God and then to continue on. So, you know, once I knew that from you guys, you know, if we were out to dinner, and maybe one day after the pandemic, we can actually go. I would love that. <laughs> yeah. Then if, if you can be like that and allow me to be a little, distra- a little distracted and yet continue on and talk about things and be in relationship, how much more, that's a quote from St. Ignatius, founder of the Jesuits, um, can God be like that with you? So to kind of relax when you're in those situations and just, just enjoy the relationship and then move on to looking at yourself and, and preparing yourself, right, for the high holy days. But the distractions, I think, are are just human, and it's part of being in relationship with God. It's just part of being alive. That's such a good concept, because I feel like if I go to synagogue on Yom Kippur, I'm there, but part of me, like, it's like when you're anywhere and you're like, oh, well, this is what I have to do. Like, oh, you know, I'm not not working today. Like, there is that that feed in your brain that you. Sure. it's really hard to shut off. And I do find myself feeling really guilty, like, no, no, this is the day. You got to shut that off. But this idea of saying this all can be going on at once and it doesn't detract. And I talk about this in this book, Learning to Pray. Part of it is distractions we can get rid of and distractions we can't. Okay, now some distractions we can get rid of. Like, what am I going to eat tonight? I mean, you can let that go. But what if you're fasting? That's really hard to get let go of. (laughs) I see. That's a good point. Spoken like a true Jesuit, you could let that go. (laughs) Well, let's just say let's just say something that's kind of extraneous or easy to let go. There's some things you can let go of. Like, you know, I wonder what the next episode of Broad Church is going to be like, you know, when I see it tonight, right? Or, or whatever show that you're watching. I mean, there's some stuff you can let go. There's some stuff you can't let go of. You know, if there's something really heavy on your mind or, you know, you're worried about some relationship or some physical problem or mental problem or emotional problem or financial problem. And that's okay. That's okay to bring into the service with you. And again, to to be able to say, God, I'm distracted and not, but I'm here, but, and I'm here. And I think, you know, part of it, Stephanie, is I think it it releases us from this kind of burden we have that we have to be these kind of perfect Zen monks. And and even the Zen monks are distracted. I think the the difficulty or the, the temptation, which prevents people from praying is saying, if I'm not totally undistracted and focused, it's not worth it. And so therefore, I'm not going to even try. It also is a bit of a pride thing because it, it, it makes you forget that God's in charge of the prayer, not you. So anyway, all those things I think are helpful. I love that. One thing that struck me as really central to this notion of prayers, about five or six years ago, I started at about the same time, you know, davening, praying three times daily, according to the strictures of observant Judaism, and also doing transcendental meditation. And it actually kind of shocked me to see that the one thing that they had in common is this idea in transcendental meditation, you are supposed to recite your mantra and then sort of lose track of it because you're distracted by your own thoughts. And rather than frown upon this, the idea, which then I figured out is precisely the same idea in our three daily prayers that Judaism mandates, is not to suppress them, but rather to note them and notice what are these things that keep pulling you away and then honor them and work on them. In other words, the 
abstraction is almost kind of the engine of prayer rather than, than a hurdle to be overcome. Well, I think that's right. And I think meditation in that way, there's a tradition in the Christian tradition called centering prayer, where, you know, in a sense, you combine those two practices, which is kind of being quiet and focusing on a prayer word or a mantra like love or God or peace or something like that. And then, you know, inviting God into that space, right? So it's actually kind of being quiet with God. One thing I think that's important to see is that in those times of prayer, they may not be distractions. And to your point, Lael, it may be something that, you know, I always say to people that God might be raising up. So, you know, is that something that God's asking you to look at, not a distraction? And that that's where discernment comes in. You know, like what's on Netflix tonight may not be something God is asking you to look at, but I feel guilty about this thing that I said to somebody this morning maybe something that God is asking you to look at. Amen to that. Well, I'll tell you a story. A Jesuit, a young Jesuit came to me a couple of years ago and said, whenever I try to pray, I'm really distracted. I said, well, what's distracting you? Well, there's someone in my community that I have a terrible relationship with. And I said something really mean to him and it just keeps coming up in my prayer. And he's so distracted. <laughs> I said, you know, it, it, I mean, I didn't laugh. I said, you know, this, this might be God raising this up for you, right? So you can you be honest about this with God? And, and it was, and he was able to kind of, work through it. You were like, there's a day for that. It's called Yom Kippur. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And it's coming up. Father James Martin, Father Jim, were you ever a Jamie or a Jimbo or was it always Jim? I was a Jimmy when I was very young and I still am to my family. So you may know that one of my goals in life is to bring back the diminutives. We've lost all the Bobbies, Timmies, Jimmies, and hence my son is Davey. Father Jimmy, thank you so much for being our Gentile of the week. <laughs> my pleasure. Toda. It's always an honor. And, uh, I'm happy to be the Gentile of the week, or I'm I'm shooting for Goy of the month. (laughs) (laughs) I think one more appearance and you win that that honor. Come back in February when your book about prayer is out and you'll be Goy of the year. (laughs) But the year is 5781. (laughs) Correct. So I'm happy to. We can't help you with 2021, but 5781? Okay. Well, Lashana Tova. Thank you, Father. Mazel tovs. Liel, have ye a mazel tov? I have a very warm mazel tov to Congregation Ahavat Torah in Englewood that this Motei Shabbos hosted me for a wonderful, outdoors, somewhat frozen, very inspired, socially distanced slichot to uh, end one year in style and kick in the new one with a, a, an empty uh, conscious and a full heart. Wow, that was that was deep. That was nice. Mine is not that deep. Mine is a mazel tov to Noah Tile and his wife, Atara. They had me on as a guest on Noah's podcast. It's called Change Talk. And it was really, really interesting. We talked about all sorts of things in the lead up to the high holidays. So thanks to Noah for having me on Change Talk. The links to that will be in the show notes. I have a mazel tov to all the people who applied to be tablet journalism fellows this fall. Uh, We got 250 or so applications. And unfortunately, we're only going to be able to take about 10 people. But a lot of them were fans of unorthodox and people took real care. We had applicants ages 14 to probably about 84. Some college graduates with three PhDs. Some people didn't finish high school. Every race you can imagine, Jew and Gentile, people with all sorts of relationships to the tradition. And just seeing how much passion there was for working in journalism this fall was really, you know, quite moving. So a mazel tov to all the people who applied. And we're going to have some announcements in the coming weeks about the 10 lucky people who will be joining us at Tablet for our journalism fellowship this October, November, and December. 
Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. We love hearing from you. Call us, 914-570-4869 or write to us, unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Subscribe to our newsletter at bit.ly slash unorthodoxpodcast. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Sarah Fredman Ader. Our assistant editor is Robert Scaramuccia. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Yaakov Glassman of St. Kildashula in Melbourne, Australia. We come to you from the newly refreshed, scattered locations of Jewish Year 5781. They're all getting a fresh coat of paint for the new Jewish year. And they will allow us to remain with you, J. Crew. Shalom, friends. Great. Efficient AF. Awesome.